So if you would stand up with me as we read John 7, 14 through 24. Uh, we just stand um, signifying that this is not merely uh, a person who wrote a book, his words, but it's actually God's words. John writes in chapter 7, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching the Jews, or sorry, began teaching, period. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on, a, on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would send us your spirit so that we might um, be convicted of our sin, um, that we might be enabled to pour our hearts out to you and to read and understand uh, your word. Uh, we pray that the things that we hear uh, would be also the things that we practice and that we would hear truth from your word today. And anything that I say that isn't um, right or isn't the correct uh, teaching, I pray that it would fall by the wayside people wouldn't remember it. But the things that are said today that correspond with your truth, I pray that you would um, press them into our hearts and make us more like Jesus. We pray these things for your glory. Amen. Uh, so last week, um, Pastor David discussed um, kind of three points uh, from 7, 1 through 13. Uh, God's tabernacling with us, God's timing uh, which I thought was ironic because it was, you know, spring forward Sunday. Um, and then how can one essentially find Jesus? And the answer to that, right, was by believing in him, by, by faith in Christ. So why was one of the points God's tabernacling with us in chapter 7? Um, you see, we have left, uh, in, in John's book, we have left the, what's called the Cana cycle from chapters 2 through essentially 4, we had a miracle done in Cana at the very beginning of that section and a miracle done in Cana at the very end of that section. And chapters 5 through 10 start a new kind of cycle in John's gospel called the festival or the festive cycle. Uh, and, the, and the reason there is a lot of times there's a reference to one of the feasts of the Jews, um, and that becomes one of the central points uh, within this. And so in chapter 7, we encountered the Feast of the Booths. And last week, um, David did a really good job at just outlining all the different nuts and bolts of that feast. And so I just want to point to one thing. In its kind of essence, it was a celebration 
of remembering Israel's wandering in the wilderness and how day to day they lived in booths or tents. Um, and then also, right, what amazes me about this time, if you read, right, Numbers, God himself dwelt in a tent with his people. So it's not only a festival celebrating, remembering that they themselves lived in a tent for generations, uh, but it's also a remembrance that God himself lived in a tent with them in the tabernacle. Uh, his presence then would lead them by pillar of fire at night and pillar of smoke by day, and then whenever he moved, they moved. Whenever he stopped, they set the tents back up again, they set the tabernacle back up again, and God dwelt in the tabernacle. So we can see this um, in, a, in a lot of books in the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, uh, but particularly in Exodus, kind of the last third of Exodus is just all the different details of building the tabernacle and the things that go in the tabernacle. And God tells Moses these things, and then Moses then repeats them almost verbatim when he's actually doing these things, uh, kind of a, a creation, God spoke, and therefore it happened kind of pattern. Um, and this is what it says, this is the very last five verses of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken out. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So God lived in a tent like his people and quite literally led them through the wilderness by his own presence. And this is what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about, or the Feast of Booths. So this theme continues. What about after the tent? What happened next? Well, Solomon builds a house, and God's glory dwells in a house, in a more permanent location inside the Promised Land. It says this in 2 Chronicles 7, 1-3. As soon as Solomon, and by the way, this dedication of the temple Solomon dedicated the temple during the Feast of Booths. Interesting. So as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And this theme then continues. The prophets pick it up. Ezekiel, the latter half of Ezekiel, well, really the whole book of Ezekiel, details how slowly but surely God's glory gets up from the tabernacle, or sorry, the temple, leaves the temple, leaves Jerusalem, and forsakes the Jews, right? Because of their rebellion, and then the end of the book of Ezekiel, he prophesies of a new Jerusalem, a new temple in which God's glory will then return and never leave again. And so it's interesting that the Jews, right, they celebrate, uh, Pastor David mentioned, it's like a celebration, the Feast of Booths, but probably at this time, what they should have been doing is mourning and crying out for the return 
of God's glory because he hadn't come back since Ezekiel. He hadn't refilled the temple like he did uh, in these times of Solomon and in these times of the, the wilderness. So the feast should have reminded the Israelites their need for God's presence. And then in our passage today, it marks off one of God's returns to the temple because Jesus enters the temple and he is God. God is returning to the temple today. Our text begins by stating, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Um, This is likely um, either the next feast that Jews had to go to since John 5, when Jesus healed the invalid at the pools of Bethsaida, or it could be an actual year after Um, John 5. John 5 might have also been during the Feast of Booths, and this is the next time Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. So David pointed this out last week, and I thought this was, it's ironic, right? Jesus comes in the middle, which means when he's traveling on the roads, he's likely alone. There's no crowds. They're already at the feast, and when he's arriving to the Feast of Booths, he's likely arriving alone because he's coming in the middle of it. And so what we have here is God... His presence in the flesh is coming to the feast by himself, whom all the crowds had already gone to celebrate. And the irony is the feast is about him, and they're not following him. They're going on their own timing, and he's coming in his own timing. And so there's a big irony there of Jesus traveling alone and no one following him to the feast. And so the question becomes, why could they not naturally see who Jesus was? And it extends out to us. Why can we not naturally see who Jesus is? And that's what our text is really answering, these questions. And verse 24 is the lens through which we're going to look at the entire text. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with, in the Greek, righteous judgment. And so we're going to look at, uh, we're going to see with righteous judgment concerning Jesus' teaching in verses 14 through 17, concerning Jesus' character and our character in verses 18 through 20, and then finally we'll see Jesus' obedience to the law, his righteous fulfillment of the law in verses 21 through 24. So our first point is this, coming from 14 through 17, we should have righteous judgment concerning the teaching of Christ, concerning the teaching of Jesus. So John writes in 14 through 17, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man is learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered him, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. If, anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God, or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So we see teaching comes out three times in those three verses, thus our focus on his teaching. We're going to see two truths about Jesus' teaching in that passage. His teaching is not his. It belongs to someone else. He's citing his sources, and it's not himself. And then the second thing we're going to look at, the truth of his teaching, is the only people that actually truly recognize the source of his teaching are those who want to do God's will. So let's look at this first one. This is the first sub-point. Jesus' teaching is God the Father's teaching. 
coming from 14 through 16. So he begins to teach in the temple in the middle of the feast, the glory of God again dwelling among his people, and he would lead them how they ought to go if they would just listen to his teaching. But the Jews here seem to be caught up in the appearances of the matter instead of the heart of what's actually going on. Instead of judging with righteous judgment, they're going to judge with unrighteous judgment. So what are the appearances? Here's a Jewish man who's come about halfway through the feast. His father appears to be Joseph. His mother is Mary. He acts like a Jewish rabbi since he has followers. He has disciples who call him rabbi, and they dedicate themselves to his teaching. And finally, he's acting like a rabbi because now he's stepping up in the temple during one of the celebrated feasts, and he's teaching God's word to anyone who would listen. The oddity here, then, from the appearances that this rabbi doesn't seem to be citing any other rabbis who preceded him. He doesn't seem to be talking about the great rabbis of old. He doesn't seem to be saying, my teaching is from fill-in-the-blank rabbi. I don't know. Um, but instead, he just seems to be teaching with authority and great learning. And then on appearances, it's even worse, right? Because it doesn't seem like he's gone to rabbi school, much less a really good rabbi school. So D.A. Carson points out that rabbis of the first century and proceeding in later centuries would appeal in their teachings to earlier statements from rabbis and that they were usually, the good ones were trained at the central rabbi schools. It makes sense, right? If you want to be a good teacher, get a good teaching degree. And yet, Jesus doesn't seem to be giving any famous names, but his teaching seems to be quality, really, really, really good. They're amazed at it. And so it's something like this uh, as a teacher uh, at school. Uh, I can identify with this a little bit. As you're reading a kind of research paper, you realize it's amazing. All of it just seems perfect. Every word is uh, perfectly structured, and all of the research seems sound, but then you realize about halfway through, the student hasn't cited one single source, hasn't said anything. This is from whatever. So then you go to the Google, and you start typing in these really good sentences to figure out where are they stealing this from, because that's automatically what you assume. And you go to the Google, and as you're going to the Google, it doesn't bring up anything, and you're like, huh, maybe he wrote this? I don't know. Google's not finding it. That's what's going on here. Jesus is teaching such so well that they're amazed at it, but they're like, Who, who's this coming from? Right? And Jesus doesn't leave them in the dark like a good rabbi. He does cite his sources. So he states, um, he states in verse 16, Jesus answered them because he realizes the charge by their astonishment. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And that's God the Father. So he gets up there, he teaches. It's really well done. They're like, where are you getting this from? God. That's where I'm getting this from. So he did quote a, a previous rabbi's judgment on scripture, right? Jesus is saying he, he was trained, he was educated in the school of God, the Father, who actually wrote the book, right? He wrote the Bible. And so Jesus is making the claim that he's giving God the Father's teaching from scripture verbatim, that it's the best interpretation, the right interpretation of scripture as he's teaching. Amazingly enough, um, in Acts 4, 
Jesus' future disciples are also associated like Jesus. Uh, It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they had recognized that they had been with Jesus. And that's the same thing that we should do today is we should recognize that Jesus has been with God the Father, right? Going back to John 1.18, he has made him known to us. So let's look at the second thing. Who are the kind of people that can receive such a claim? That, that, that Jesus' teaching is quite literally God's teaching. Um, and Jesus' teaching is recognized by those who want to do God's will. That's his response here in verse 17. So he tells the truth. My teaching's from God. And then the question becomes, well, who can receive it? And he says this. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So it's pretty simple. Um, option one, Jesus is telling the truth, and he is saying what God is saying. Or option two, he's speaking on his own authority. And what Jesus says to them is, everyone who s- believes that my teachings from God are those who believe in me. And if they don't believe in me, they don't believe my teaching is from God. Those who want to do God's will will recognize that Jesus is teaching is from God. Those who do not want to do God's will will not recognize Jesus' teaching from God. So let's look at those two options. Uh, The the, I'm speaking of my own authority in the Greek gives a very me-centric flavor to the text. There's I, which is attached to speaking. It's actually in the verb. I is already there. You don't need another I. And then there's a pronoun I, That precedes the verb, so it's like he's shouting the word I. I am speaking on my own authority. And in the actual structure, the way that it literally would read is I from myself, I speak. There's a lot of me's and my's and I's in that center. So uh, option two, Jesus is all about himself. But then option one is God-centric. Jesus' teaching flows from God the Father, and it it doesn't properly belong to him, but it's sourced in God himself. And you'll recognize that if you want to do God's will. That sounds like what an eighth grader might say to me. That's circular reasoning. We teach eighth graders logic at my school, and that's a terrible idea, because then they just go home and they argue with everyone. Um, So what what do we do when they say it's circular reasoning, right? Because Jesus is quite literally saying, You'll believe that my teaching's from God if if you want to do God's will. So if you say my teaching's not from God, you don't want to do God's will. Sounds circular. D.A. Carson actually uh, gives a response here, which I think is helpful, uh, if not maybe a little complicated. But he says this means that the truth is self-authenticating, not with vicious circularity, but in the sense that finite, fallen, human beings cannot set themselves up on more, some more sure ground outside of the truth and thus gain the vantage from which they may assess it. Divine revelation can only be assessed, as it were, from the inside. So the, the way that I think of it is you might think of someone trying to study the ground but not stand on the ground. It's impossible. You, you have to be standing on something in order to assess the thing that you're standing on. That's essentially what is going on here. And so how can you go outside of the truth to critique the truth? You have to stand on the truth in order to understand the truth. 
And Jesus is saying, my teaching is true. Therefore, you have to stand on my teaching in order to see that it is true. So um, the, the question, maybe more importantly, to ask ourselves is, how do we know if we are those who want to do God's wills, uh, God's will? So uh, the first one is already answered. Uh, you will see and receive Jesus' teaching as from God himself. That's the first one. If you do that, you know you want to do God's will. Uh, the second answer comes from John 6, 29, when essentially J Jesus is answering the Jews' questions, how can one do the works of God? How can one do the will of God, essentially? Jesus answers, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So our two proofs of whether or not you know that your heart wants to do God's will is first, you see Jesus' teaching as God's teaching, and second, you believe in Jesus who was sent by God. So let's look at our um, second point. We've looked at Jesus' teaching, and now we're actually going to look at Jesus, the, his characteristics, who he is, his identity. And this is coming from verses 18 through 20. And we are to have righteous judgment concerning the character of Jesus and also later on ourselves. John writes in 18 through 20, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? End quote. And so Jesus is giving us a glimpse into his own character. And like a light suddenly flickering on at night that exposes all the cockroaches that have infested right, our own hearts. right, And everything kind of goes to the run. This is what happens when you look at the righteousness of Christ. It then turns on our own hearts, and we see the terrible unrighteousness therein that lies. And so we're going to see that Jesus' holiness exposes our sinfulness. And so to that end, let's look first at his righteousness in verse 18. Let me reread verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. And so in this little verse, we actually see three perfections, three treasures, three things worthy of praise in the character of Christ. The first thing that we see is we see, we're told that Christ seeks God's glory alone. The second thing, we're told that Christ is true. And the third thing, we're told that in Christ, there is no unrighteousness. In Christ, there is no unrighteousness. Jesus really is the man who loves the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loves his neighbor as himself. There's never a second in all of his existence as a man, from beginning to end, from conception to even now as he's, a, as he's seated at the right hand of God, there's never a second where he doesn't obey his Father. He perfectly glorifies God the Father. All that he does and says is perfectly true. And finally, he is perfectly righteous according to the law. Now, you might say the ESV says in him there is no falsehood. So where are you getting this notion of righteousness? The word for falsehood here is the Greek word adikia, which comes from dikia. Ah just makes it negated. It is the word for righteousness. 
And so when you put an A in front of it, it's the word for unrighteousness. And so there's two real reasons for why I think we should read this as unrighteousness. First, that's the natural most used meaning of the the word lexically, dictionarily. Um, But the second thing is, is look at verse 19. He immediately goes to the law, which is about righteousness. Has not Moses given you the law? And so it's like he's saying, I'm looking at the law, and this is what it says about my heart, and now I'm going to turn to you and look at what the law says about your heart. Has not Moses given you the law? And so one of our kind of sub-themes that I think is important is, and this is an important question for Christians to answer, um, if we can't be saved by the law, if the law doesn't give us life, why then the law? What's the purpose of the law? How should a Christian use the law? And there's, there's multiple answers to that question, but we actually three, we're going to see three of those answers throughout this text, but we see two of them here. The first one is we should use the law like a window. We look through the law and we should be able to see the holy nature of God, that he's perfect. All these things that he's demanding of us, that is flowing out of his character. He is what the law points to, the holy nature of God. So it's a window through which we look through. But then it's the second thing, too. It's a mirror. It's a mirror which we gaze into, and it reflects back to us the image of our own hearts, what it really looks like before the righteousness of God. And when we look at that mirror, if you look at it truthfully, it's not a good image that's reflected back. We're completely fallen. We're not obeying the law. We do want to kill people because we're full of anger. Our relationships aren't pure. We're not full of truth. We aren't keeping God as our only God. We are trusting in created things instead of the creator. We are envious and we want what doesn't belong to us. We are full of deceit. Um, The law doesn't reflect well on us. And so this is actually shown to us in 19 through 20. So if the law shows us the perfections of Christ, it also shows us the twisted sinful corruption of our hearts. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. I mean, look what Jesus just said there. None of you keeps the law. He said that to that crowd. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So it's a window, but it's also a mirror. And the window showed us three perfections of Christ's character. It's also going to show us three corruptions of our own character. None of you keeps the law, a.k.a. we are full of unrighteousness. Uh, Our hearts seek to kill God's son and thus God, a.k.a. we do not seek God's glory, but we seek our own. And then the third one, we would rather falsely accuse, make up a more convenient story than call Jesus is is true, right? Jesus, you have a demon who's trying to kill you. We're full of deceit. We're not full of truth. And so note how these three things starkly contrast against Christ. He seeks God's glory alone. We seek God's downfall. He is true. We are full of deceit and lies about God and ourselves. In him, there is no unrighteousness, no disobedience. In us, there is no righteousness and no obedience. You can't get farther away from God than that, right? And so the law is a window showing us God and a law as a mirror showing us ourselves. 
It doesn't paint a pretty picture. So when confronted by the perfect Christ and accused of him seeking to kill them, a.k.a. break the don't murder commandment in Exodus 20.13, the Jews accuse him of being demon-possessed and ask, who is killing you? Who's trying to kill you? But here's what Jesus' point is. You're still talking about me working on the Sabbath. You're still talking about me healing a man on the Sabbath. And you're accusing me of breaking the Sabbath. And what is the result of breaking the Sabbath? Exodus 35, 2. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You're taking the law and you're saying, I deserve to die. And then Jesus is flipping it back on them and saying, no, there's no unrighteousness in me. It's actually you who deserve to die. You see, the seed of the serpent has always sought to kill and confront the seed of Eve, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. We see right after the curse, the, the fall and the curses of God, the very first story that we see is two of Eve's children presenting worship to God. And God receives one, right? He receives Abel's sacrifice of the firstborn of his flock, prefiguring Christ's death. He receives that and says it's good. And then he doesn't receive Cain. In fact, he rejects him. And what does Cain do? He murders his brother, and then he lies to God about it. This is the nature of man left to himself. We would also kill Christ if we were left to our own wicked hearts, and we too would deny that we would want to do that. So Thomas Watson, um, he's a, a Puritan from the 1600s, 1700s. He wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance, and he goes in this and rails off 20 descriptions of sin, the sinfulness of sin. And I, I thought it just, it really paints, I think, the state of our hearts without Christ, right? And so I'm going to add a 21st to it, you know, just for kicks. But every sin is a recession from God. Sin is walking contrary to God. Sin is an injury to God. Sin is profound ignorance. Sin is a piece of desperateness for in every sin a man runs the apparent hazard of his soul because he's treading upon the brink of a bottomless pit sin besmears us with filth in sin there is odious ingratitude non-thanksgiving sin is a debasing thing sin is a damaging thing sin is a burdening thing sin is a debt there is deceitfulness in sin sin is a spiritual sickness Sin is a bondage. Sin has a spreading malignity for, for in it. It doesn't just want to hurt man's self, but it also wants to hurt others. Sin is a vexatious thing, for it brings trouble with it. Sin is an absurd thing. There's cruelty in every sin. Sin is a spiritual death, and sin without repentance tends towards fi final damnation. And finally, this 21st thing, sin leads a heart to hate and want to kill God want to dethrone God from his glory. And so the law is a mirror, and it doesn't paint a beautiful picture here. Jesus says, even to us, you don't keep the law, right? You don't keep it. You don't obey the law. And so how can we be saved? Who can bridge the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness? And let's look at the third point from verses 21 through 23. We should have righteous judgment concerning Jesus' obedience to the law. So 21 through 23 takes up the part of the Jews still accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, 
all the way from the last time he was in Jerusalem and he healed the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, 21 through 23 says this, Jesus answered them, I did one work, likely John 5, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? And so the question becomes, did Jesus really keep the law perfectly, or is it like some of the Jews thought? He broke the Sabbath. He disobeyed God there. Uh, because we, we should be like the Jews here. We remember Jesus, it seems like a year ago maybe, when you were here in Jerusalem, and you worked on the Sabbath. We remember that. So please explain yourself to us. And so we get his defense here. He already gave a defense in John 5. He said God was working, and God's his father, and so he is working as well. That was his defense in chapter 5. But here he's actually going to use some of the Jews' own understandings of the Sabbath against them. So... um, Let's put it this way. Moses, so here's his argument from 22 on. Moses gave circumcision to the Jews. Well, he didn't really, right? The fathers did. But Moses then regulated it in the law of God. So what happens if a person who's supposed to be circumcised on day eight, what happens when day eight is the Sabbath? Do I pick obedience to the circumcision law or do I pick obedience to the Sabbath law? That's the the question that Jesus brings to the forefront, and he obviously tells them, you're rabbis, and you teach clearly that it's okay to not obey the Sabbath in the case of circumcision, because one's more important than the other in this instance. So why is it that this circumcision law can take precedence over the Sabbath, but me making an entire man's body well can't also take precedence over the Sabbath? So... Verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? So D.A. Carson put me on to reading uh, some of the teachings and commentaries of various rabbis from the 1st and 2nd century A.D., and I thought it was going to be a waste of my time, but there was some really good stuff in here that basically makes the same point that Jesus makes, which I thought was interesting. So from the Tosefta Shabbat uh, 16, this is a compilation of various rabbis commenting on the law, the first five books of the Bible, particularly in Exodus. They're commenting on the Sabbath day. So one of these quotes comes from a rabbi named Eliezer ben Azariah, and he's from 70 AD. So he's right after Jesus, right? And then the rest of these quotes come from second century, again, right after Jesus. This is what um, Eliza says in regards to the Sabbath. If for one limb, in reference to circumcision of a person, the Sabbath can be superseded, it is logical that the Sabbath should be superseded for all of him. And here's another quote. Behold, you have learned that a risk to life takes precedence over the Sabbath. And here's another one. Nothing takes precedence over saving a life except save for idolatry, sexual sin, and murder. And so Jesus, quite literally, is saying the exact same things that rabbis around his time would have been saying 
about the Sabbath. And so they're looking at Leviticus 18.5, which says this, You shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And what their interpretation of that is, the point of the law is to bring life, that we should live by them, not die by them. So obedience to the law leading to the death of a person is not obedience to the law. That, that's essentially their arguments here. So putting this all together, Jesus is actually lining up pretty well with some of the famous rabbis of the time. And it could be that his teaching actually originated their teaching since he preceded the earliest reference I can find to that kind of teaching. But perhaps more to our purposes and less speculative, D.A. Carson states this in, in terms of circumcision. It was seen as a perfecting rite where one member of the body was perfected. So then taking that in line with Jesus, Jesus' healing of the whole man thereby becomes a fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision on the very day that served as a signal of God's Old Testament purposes of redemption and rest. Another way of saying that, Jesus perfectly fulfills and obeys the law in every way. He fulfilled the law by healing the invalid in John 5. His obedience to the law then is now being twisted by his opponents to make an argument for his death. So let's return to the law again. It's a window through which we see the holy nature of God. It's a mirror through which we see our great depravity, our great fallenness, our shortcomings before God. But the law is also a third thing. It's a memory or it's a reminder of Jesus, our need for him. Because when you see God's holiness and you see your shortcomings, the question naturally becomes, is there a bridge? Is there something that can get me from point B over here to holiness? And the answer to that question is Jesus can. So it should be a reminder that constantly makes us look to Christ to bridge that gap. What man shall pay the debt of my sin? Well, the man would have to be righteous before the law. The man would have to be true in all he says and does. And the man would have to be one who seeks God's glory alone. And we find this with Jesus here. So John and Jesus brings our attention to this so that we might trust in Christ to bridge this gap. So John Owen, another Puritan, in a book called The Glory of Christ, writes this about Jesus' obedience. Jesus' obedience was not for himself, but for us. We, are, we were obliged to obey and could not. He was not obliged to obey, but by a free act of his own will did. God gave him this honor that he should obey for the whole church so that, quote Romans 5, 19, by his obedience, many should be made righteous. So we conclude here in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with, in, in the Greek, righteous judgment. Judge with righteous judgment. Perhaps it's an echo of Isaiah eleven three through 4. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Again, a passage about Jesus. Or perhaps it's an echo of Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished at you, 
his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And later on in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. But certainly there's another echo here, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesus is taking that and saying, don't look on me by appearance, but look like the Lord looks. Look on the heart of the matter. See me as I really am. Judge me with righteousness, right? And this is interesting because Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the true Davidic king who will sit on the throne forever. Jesus is the eternally begotten son of God who became a man and took our sins upon himself. And so we should not see with our eyes as man sees, but we should look on the heart of the manner. And if you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, I would tell you the, uh, the kind of opposite of that, that you shouldn't believe and trust your eyes, and you shouldn't believe and trust your ears, but you should ask God to give you the judgment of the matter, to show you Christ as he really is. So John Owens again writes on the glory of Christ, this is how we ought to see him. We might see him under the weight of God's wrath and the curse of the law, taking upon himself and on his whole soul the utmost that God has ever threatened to sin or sinners. We might see him in his agony and bloody sweat, in his strong cries and supplications, when he was sorrowful unto death and filled with the horror at the sight of those things which were coming upon him, the dreadful trial he was about to enter. We might see him wrestling with all the powers of darkness, the rage and madness of men, and suffering all this in his soul, his body, his name, his reputation, his goods, and his life. Some of these sufferings were inflicted directly by God. Others came from devils and wicked men, acting according to the determinate counsel of God. We might see him praying, weeping, crying out, bleeding, dying, making his soul an offering for sin. But the glory of his obedience becomes more wonderful when we realize who he was who thus obeyed God. He was none other than the Son of God made man. This is what makes the obedience of Christ so mysterious and glorious. And so I'll just end. Do you see God the Son who tabernacled among us? Do you see the glory of God dwelling with the church? This is the Jesus whom we are here today to worship, the Jesus who bridges the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness and reconciles us back to God. Let's pray.